Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 3.43, Season in Review, Part 2. Welcome back. First, I want to thank everybody who took the time to send me questions and want to note that the window to send them in to me is now officially closed. I'm making my way through them and I'm working on the answers. I plan to answer as many of them as I can. Today, we are going to be wrapping up our season three in review by looking at the trends that we saw this season and trying to understand what it all meant. Really, the story of our third season has been one of transformation. Following the trials and tribulations of the end of the 17th century, the colonies entered into a period of transformation that would help define the remainder of the colonial experience in North America. These changes are not going to occur to a single part of life either. There is no one thing that would happen that explains how the colonies would find themselves on the brink of a revolution. And, in fact, where we have left off in our story, right around 1763, the colonists likewise have no idea that they are just 13 years away from the Declaration of Independence. The North American colonists do not know that they have been building towards anything it is not as though this was some conscious effort to achieve some preconceived outcome. The question we are left with, therefore, is twofold. What had happened to the colonies since the end of the Glorious Revolution to explain where they stood now, a little more than a decade away from the American Revolution? Recall that back during Bacon's Rebellion, there had been at least some amount of rumblings about the potential for Chesapeake independence. Now, these machinations really never get anywhere past the what-if-we-did-a-thing phase of the project. Serious planning never got off the ground, and other than a few feelers sent up to New England, that was pretty much it. Once Bacon died, the plan just evaporated off into the ether, without even a whimper. Realistically, though, the idea of independence in the 1670s seemed pretty unlikely. Running Governor William Berkeley out of town was one thing, but the overthrow of British control over the region? Well, that was just not going to happen. Beyond the ability to meaningfully defeat English control, the Chesapeake colonies lacked both the population and the economic base to really make independence any kind of a meaningful goal. However, that began to change as the colonies moved into the 18th century. This is because of a couple of reasons, some of which we talked about last week. First, there is that increase in the immigration rate. More people are coming into the colonies. We talked about how this means more than just people from Britain, too. During the 18th century, you see Germans, French Huguenots, and Jews, just to name a few of the groups coming into the colonies. There is also the fact that by this time, the colonies are no longer a place where people go to strike it rich and then return to England proper. This, of course, has been a trend for a while now. However, by the 18th century, most people in North America would remain there their entire lives. Likewise, settlement in the colonies was far less dangerous than it had been just a short time earlier, with a couple notable exceptions. Would you have wanted to be a colonist living out on the frontiers of, say, Virginia or Pennsylvania during 1756 or 57? No, probably not. For them, it was still a pretty dangerous endeavor. However, the closer to the coast you got, the safer things became. 
In many cases, the colonists now lived a significant distance from the frontier and the dangers that were associated with it. People were living longer and considerably more comfortably than those groups who had first come over during the 17th century. If you wanted to come settle down and live in Boston, for instance, there was significantly less risk to your health and safety than there had been just a half century earlier. With that increase in immigration and people settling down for life in the colonies, there was a dramatic rise in the population as a function of natural growth which comes from more people having more kids. In just a little under a century, between the years 1660 and 1750, we see the colonial population increase from approximately 75,000 to over 1 million. By the time of the revolution, that number would top out at over 2 million. This number likewise completely ignores the slave population, which too had skyrocketed during this stretch. During that same period, the slave population increased from several hundred to over 300,000. This massive increase in population, both slave and free alike, would transform the colonial economy in profound ways. As we had discussed last week, immigration from other regions of Europe had brought with it an increase in skilled labor. Throughout all of the colonies, more and more artisans would arrive, and with them came an increase in both the amount of demand and supply of luxury items, with many of these items being produced in the colonies directly. The increase in the slave population would also finally force the southern colonies, especially Virginia, to diversify their farming efforts. Tobacco was still the big moneymaker, something that was going to hold true really until the 1790s when cotton would take that crown. However, regardless of how intensive a crop tobacco is, there is still going to be an inevitable amount of downtime when it comes to farming it. For southern plantation owners, this presented them with two problems. The last thing that they wanted was for their slave population to be sitting idle. From an economic standpoint, slaves were expensive, and it makes little sense to have them sitting around doing nothing for large portions of the year. Second, pretty much every slave owner was at least a little concerned that his slaves were going to kill him and his family during the middle of the night. Slave owners were not itching to give their slaves a whole lot of free time to sit around and discuss how much they did not enjoy being slaves and plot ways to relieve themselves of that situation. Add in the policies of salutary neglect and the laxer enforcement of regulations that came along with it, and really things boomed in between the years from the end of Queen Anne's War and the War of Jenkins' Ear. Importantly, for as much as we see the colonial population expand, it should not be missed that the economic growth during this same time is more than a function of population growth. The economic expansion outpaced the expansion of the population. As the North American colonies were producing more exports, both for mainland Britain and the West Indies, it likewise meant more wealth for the colonists, which, in turn, increased the number of luxury imports being brought into the North American colonies. Really then, what this leaves you with is colonies that, as a whole, were far more economically stable and diversified over what you would have seen in, say, 1675. When the idea of Chesapeake independence was being thrown out there during Bacon's Rebellion, 
the economy realistically would have had a tough time supporting such an endeavor, as the colonies were far too reliant on that direct trade with Great Britain. Not that the colonies don't remain reliant on trade with Britain prior to, and then again after, the American Revolution. But the dynamics had certainly changed. The period of peace following Queen Anne's War would likewise allow a distinct colonial culture to begin to appear, that was separate from what existed back in Britain itself. We spent most of our time looking at this through the lens of Benjamin Franklin. To claim that the colonies during this time created a culture akin to what existed across the Atlantic is, well, pretty far from the truth. Distinct culture in the colonies was without a doubt in its infancy at this point. However, it was at least beginning to form. Franklin was, genuinely, a public figure for his work with electricity. These tests would become well-known throughout both the colonies and across the Atlantic. This would help give Franklin much-needed clout across the ocean, which is going to be important in the future. However, experiments aside, Franklin sat at the forefront of a handful of other critical developments in the colonies. Among these is that he was critical in establishing a bunch of different societies throughout Philadelphia. Now, Benjamin Franklin is not alone in doing this. He did not invent the civic society. However, these are going to prove to be important. These societies would prove to be a launching base for widespread civic involvement, something that Franklin was always interested in. It likewise helped establish groups that would meet and discuss pressing matters of the day. As we move further into the crisis of the 1760s, these societies would prove to be another place where groups of people could meet to discuss what was happening. Though not necessarily akin to, say, the salons in France, these societies provided yet another base of conversation. More than anything, however, when we think of Franklin during this era, we think of the newspaper. Because, first and foremost, Benjamin Franklin was a printer. Newspapers are an incredibly important medium during this time. They are how ideas were communicated to wider audiences. Far more important than reporting the news, though, papers were a way that ideas could be disseminated. Newspapers were not entirely alone at this. There were things like pamphlets as well that were going around, but we're going to talk more about that next season. The growth of the newspapers and printed materials being produced inside the colonies is going to be huge as we move forward. As the events of the 1760s begin moving the colonies towards the looming revolution, printing is going to help the spread of information and will help galvanize the population towards the patriot cause. There are going to be a whole lot of people with a whole lot of opinions advocating for a whole lot of things. Printed materials is how that information, those ideas that would come to define the revolution, are going to spread throughout the colonies. It is likewise important to understand that the colonial press was an extremely partisan institution. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the political nature of the colonial papers and publications, something that we are going to really see explode during the early American Republic. However, well before you have men like Benjamin Franklin Bache, the grandson of Benjamin Franklin, and James Callender causing headaches for both the Federalists and Anti-Federalists alike, there was already a long history going back to the colonies 
of printers standing at the top of often bitter political fights. From the growth of the population and the economic expansion, and the emergence of an early culture within the colonies, those decades between the end of Queen Anne's War and the outbreak of the War of Jenkins' Ear really marks a moment when the colonies would grow and mature. The policies of salutary neglect fueled massive amounts of economic expansion, which would help to modernize colonial life. People could, more and more, live quite comfortably in the North American colonies. Of course, we just finished up a run of 18 episodes covering the French and Indian War. It is therefore completely impossible for me to pretend that the story of this season had in fact been peace. In fact, there is at least an argument to be made that the French and Indian War was the single most defining event of the entire colonial period. And while I do not want to get pulled in trying to power rank major events of the American colonial era, there is little question that the war left an indelible mark on the events to come. I had mentioned previously that I had decided against doing anything really diving into the legacy of the French and Indian War. This is because next season, as we move through the turbulence of the 1760s into the eventual break during the middle of the 1770s, the French and Indian War is going to loom over everything, like some kind of omnipresent giant. This is not to say that there is some direct line from point A to point B. Indeed, the revolution was not some inevitable event that became cast in stone as soon as Vaudreuil surrendered Montreal. There were a whole lot of places where both sides could have still avoided war at this point. And really, there would be places where things could have been avoided all the way up into 1775. Even after that, after the fighting had already begun, there may have still been opportunities to scale back up that cliff and onto the top side of the precipice. Now, next season, we are going to really drop down into the weeds on this, as the longer-term repercussions of the French and Indian War become increasingly clear. However, that is still a little further off in our future. For today, I want to take a look back at some of the bigger trends that we saw during the war itself, because though we are going to be spending a lot of time dealing with the aftermath, there are some critical developments in colonial relations with the British during the conflict itself. One of the most prevalent feelings during the war, especially in those early years prior to William Pitt's arrival, was a general feeling of disrespect on the part of the colonists. It was no surprise to anybody that the provincial troops were seen as being less than the regular troops in the eyes of the British leadership. To be fair, this is not an entirely unfair position for the British either. Provincials were notoriously undisciplined. Pretty much, the minute a firefight broke out, there was a decent chance that the provincial troops were going to decide to get out of Dodge as quickly as possible, much to the very considerable annoyance of the British leadership. What resulted from this was a system where the British attempted to subject these untrained provincials to discipline equal to that of the British regulars. This was a despised policy by those provincials, because really, they were not professional soldiers nor did they ever pretend to be. At the same time, the provincial officers were determined to be completely subordinate to all British officers. 
for the provincial officers, this was extremely disrespectful and was something that left them very bitter. George Washington has become something of a poster child for this exact thing. Washington was not at all happy about this and considered it a direct affront to his honor. He would write extensively about it, complaining about just how much of a slight it was. This situation did admittedly get better once William Pitt came into power and revamped the war effort. Pitt would make colonial officers subordinate to regular officers of equal rank, but would not make them subordinate to all regular officers. Pitt recognized that you cannot subject provincials to discipline equal to the regulars and expect to still have any provincials willing to fight. He was also quick to recognize that the best use of provincials was to handle the tasks necessary to free up the regulars to do the heavy lifting when it came to the actual fighting. And although Pitt would help to reverse some of the more grating problems, it is not as though the colonists simply forgot the previous slights. Another problem came from the absolutely abysmal relations between the early war leaders and the colonial governments. Specifically here, I'm discussing two men in particular, Edward Braddock and the Earl of Loudoun, John Campbell. Beginning with Braddock, he completely blew off all the advice that he was given concerning the need for Indian allies. And really, it is not as though people were not warning him that he was making mistakes. Yet he seemed completely unconcerned by the idea that he was heading out into the Pennsylvania frontier with only a handful of Indians with him. Even Braddock's destination was something that the provincial officers told him was a mistake. Fort Duquesne had become a symbolic target for the British to be sure. However, colonial leadership was quick to point out that the real target should not be Duquesne, but Fort Niagara instead. Again, however, Braddock ignored the warnings of the colonial governors, because, hey, he was the professional. Both George Washington and Benjamin Franklin had given Braddock advice about his planned mission on Duquesne. Both times, he ignored it. It was Franklin who warned Braddock that he needed to look out for the real risk of Indian ambushes. To which Braddock not only completely ignored the advice, but he informed Franklin that the Indians might be a problem for provincials, but surely they were not going to be a problem for him. Of course, we now know that those same Indians who were of zero concern to Braddock would deliver an absolutely crushing blow that would see much of his army end up dead, including Braddock himself. Even after Braddock, we see that the British leadership coming over really learned little about dealing with the colonies. When Loudon took over from William Shirley, he quickly ran into the brick wall that was the colonial legislatures. Loudon was invested with an incredible amount of power and was working with near vice-regal authority. His assumption was that the colonial governors would just be a pushover and would quickly bend to his whims. Loudon, though, was about to be extremely disappointed. Today is the 107th episode of this podcast. If there is a single takeaway that I could give you all that has become abundantly clear over the course of this show, it is that the colonial governments have zero intention of being a pushover for anybody, ever. Rather than bend to his whim as requested, 
internal politics would stymie Loudon at every turn, which would infuriate him. Really, it was not as though Loudon did not realize that internal politics might be a thing. It was more that he simply did not care that it was, in fact, a thing. Loudon, through his embargo, devastated the economy to very little concern on his part. The only thing that eventually lifted the embargo was the colonists in Virginia when they decided that they had had enough and just stopped following it. Loudon, realizing that he had probably lost the room at that point, went ahead and lifted it himself, though apparently he forgot to inform all of the colonies, like South Carolina, that he had indeed lifted the thing. Loudon would also turn to the practice of quartering soldiers in private homes, which would prove deeply unpopular. Once again, this gets better when William Pitt assumes full control. This is to say nothing of the fact that his programs would infuse the colonies with a tremendous amount of subsidies to fund the war effort, something that would be extremely welcome at the time and would help get the colonies on board with supporting the war. Now, those subsidies are going to come at a tremendous price as well, but we are going to hold off until next season for that specific story. The French and Indian War will have major, lasting impacts on the relationship between the British and their American colonists. Although the dynamic would change as the war wound on, it is not as though people forgot those slights during the earlier parts of the conflict. Washington, who would prove himself to be very accomplished at the art of holding a grudge, would indeed continue to hold a grudge against the British army whose conduct he felt had disrespected his honor. The colonial governments, likewise, are going to remember their treatment under Braddock and especially Loudoun. Even during the best of times, the colonists were at their happiest when Britain was an absentee landlord. Experiences during those early years of the French and Indian War are going to do nothing but exacerbate already existing feelings. There are, of course, many other ramifications that stem out of the French and Indian War, but really those are not readily apparent in the immediate aftermath of the conflict, and would not become so for a few years to come. If you have been following along today, you may get the idea that one of the biggest developments of the first half of the 18th century is that the colonies had become a more united entity. However, this really is not true. The colonies are not terribly united in any meaningful way. There is, to be sure, a degree of cooperation between the colonies by this point. There is intercolonial trade going on, and likewise within specific regions there is some additional level of cooperation, for example in areas like New England and in the Chesapeake. However, really there was little interest on either side of the Atlantic for a closer relationship between the individual colonies. We know this because there was at least some effort to foster an alliance between the colonies. Spearheaded by none other than Benjamin Franklin during the early years of the war, his proposed Albany plan sought to bring the colonies into closer alliance with one another. Recall that under the Albany Plan of Union, there would be a central colonial government that would focus on the defense of the colonies, as well as matters of westward expansion. As the French and Indian War was largely being fought over access to the Ohio country, it makes sense that this would have been on Franklin's mind. There would have been a unicameral legislature with representatives being based on a mixture of population and wealth. 
the representatives would have come from each of the colonies. The individual colonies would maintain their own, albeit smaller, governments for the express purpose of handling legal matters and dealing with local issues. Finally, at the top of all of this would have been a president general running the executive department. This position would have been appointed directly by the king. It is understandable that this was a radical departure from anything we had ever seen before. Franklin had allies in this battle too, including Thomas Hutchinson, the future loyalist governor of Massachusetts. Although the Albany Congress would actually approve and adopt the plan, it was rejected by just about everybody else. None of the colonies were on board with the plan, and it was soundly rejected. This tells us a couple of key things. First, it tells us that the colonies at this point had little interest in any meaningful common alliance. The proposal by Franklin was never seriously considered anywhere. Few colonies debated it. Others, like New Hampshire and Georgia, were completely forgotten about in it, while other colonies outright ignored it. So internally during the 1750s, there was little push towards anything that would have brought the colonies into closer cooperation with one another. And to be absolutely clear, Franklin was not thinking about independence at this point whatsoever. Sure, he wanted the colonies to work closer together, and he hoped for his union to pass. However, he was not advocating for independence here. He wanted the union to exist as part of the British Empire, not as something altogether separate from it. As we are going to see moving forward, the situation is going to transform dramatically in a relatively short amount of time. While that story is for next season, it is critical to understand just how far away the colonies were from any kind of unity, both during and after the French and Indian War. This, of course, is not something that the British were terribly eager to disrupt. Yeah, it probably would have made their lives a little bit easier during the war. But the mother country was not exactly clamoring for better relationships between their North American colonies. Lest the colonists get any ideas that maybe the mother country wasn't needed. This past season, we covered a period that has taken the colonies from what was the immediate aftermath of the Glorious Revolution, all the way through the end of the French and Indian War. So, what were the takeaways over this season? What is the broad themes that would define this era of colonial history? Really, it is impossible to look at this season without turning our gaze forward and looking at what is coming. We are a little more than a decade away from the American Revolution. We are just a year away from the Sugar Act, two from the Stamp Act. The imperial crisis is just on the horizon for the colonies. Knowing this, the real theme of this season has been moving the colonies into a position where the revolution was something that was even possible. Again, this is not to say that it was inevitable, because it wasn't, but that the colonies were now in a place where at least the possibility meaningfully existed. This stands in contrast to our conversation last season about some rumblings during Bacon's Rebellion about Greater Chesapeake Independence. That was never going to work out. Now, however, things had changed. Those changes had come in the form of population and economic growth, 
salutary neglect had allowed for the colonial economies to grow in a completely unprecedented way. The growth and expansion of slavery had caused southern plantation owners to diversify their crops after years of stagnation. The population had seen significant growth as well, both through natural growth rates and through increased immigration. What you are therefore left with are colonies that have a much larger population base combined with a far more robust economy than what had existed when we started the season. The colonies were far more self-sustaining in 1763 than they had been in 1689. Despite all of these advancements, however, the colonies still do need time. They were far from united in 1763. They still viewed each other as competitors. While there has been a long history at this point of regional cooperation with each other, there remained little cooperation between the whole sweep of North American colonies. The reaction to the Albany Plan shows us that there was very little interest during the 1750s, outside a small cadre of men like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Hutchinson that are pushing for more connectivity and cooperation between the individual colonies. It is going to take something more to push the colonies into a closer alliance, and in 1763, those events have yet to occur. At the end of this season, it has been a story of the colonies maturing in virtually all aspects. Yet, even with that growth, we still see some of those same cracks in the foundations of the colonies that has really been at the very front of our story since the beginning. Relations with the mother country remained a complicated thing. Salutary neglect had allowed considerable economic growth, and really, the colonists were not itching to have increased oversight from Great Britain. During the French and Indian War, subsidies by William Pitt had pumped huge amounts of money into the colonies, and in fact had helped create the strongest economy that we have ever seen there. This is going to have its own set of future consequences. In the case of George Washington, more than just experiencing what he felt to be a slight to his honor, he had witnessed what the British Army really was. He was an eyewitness to the failed march by Braddock. He witnessed the result of Braddock's hubris and must have mentally noted that the British Army can indeed be vulnerable. Lessons that he learned from the French and Indian War are going to carry on with him into the future American Revolution. And that, folks, is now where we are. We are standing on the precipice of the imperial crisis. The founding generation is all here, even if we have not introduced them yet. When we return next season, we are going to quickly witness convulsions begin to spread throughout the colonies as frustrations grow. The colonists will face new challenges while simultaneously asking themselves that question that has loomed over everything else. What exactly is the place of the North American colonies in the Greater British Empire? Next time, we are going to have one final review episode, where we are going to look at the grand sweep of colonial history. As we sit here now, waiting for that relationship to unravel, I want to step back and look over those key moments that we have seen thus far. How do the events from the prior century help explain where the colonies stand in 1763? 
How had the relationship with Britain changed over the last century and a half? Finally, what are the events from colonial history that we need to take away with us as we move into the next era of American history? We are going to address all of that next week. After that, we are going to have our question and answer episode. And then two weeks after that, we are going to jump right into season four. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you all back here next time as we take a retrospective look at the colonial experience. <laughs> <laughs>